Thank you, Kelly. Great job. Take your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter number 21. It's great to be back this morning. We appreciate uh, your prayers for us. Appreciate the privilege of being able to make the trip. And uh, obviously some of you did pray for us because uh, for Hamby's we had a really uneventful trip. First of all, I have to say, thank God for air conditioning. You don't appreciate it until you don't have it. <clears throat> we uh, flew 12 different times, 12 different flights, and we didn't miss any of our flights. The one that we almost missed was we, when we arrived in Manila and we're going to fly to Tacalaban. We got to the airport at Manila, and I'm not exaggerating, the line to get into the airport was a block long. We knew we were in trouble then. <clears throat> we got into the airport, and a very helpful Filipino man came up who worked for the airport. He says, if, if the two of you were to get into these wheelchairs, we could get you to the front of the line. <laughs> what could we do? There are some advantages to being gray-headed. <clears throat> My dear wife is paying the, the cost today, though. Now she is actually really limping and needs a wheelchair. I also found culturally there are some differences. For example, in the Philippines, you don't say someone is a hostess unless you realize that you're calling them a prostitute. I did that in my preaching on Sunday morning. I called Martha, Lazarus' sister, a prostitute. I didn't realize it until afterwards, but I called her a prostitute. Hopefully the missionary has been able to correct that since then. Matthew chapter 21, I'll see what I can do in my own language this morning here. Matthew chapter number 21. As we return to our study of the book of Matthew, it is now late March, and the feast of the Passover is near. We are now in the last week of the Lord's earthly ministry. We need to remember that according to John's account, it was just the previous day that uh, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus and his disciples, as well as, the, as those who have witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus, are returning to Jerusalem. Of course, the reality of that miracle is reinforced by the presence of the man who was formerly dead, Lazarus himself. Not to mention that on the road to Jerusalem in Jericho, Jesus has just healed the blind man. Because of these miracles, the facts are that more and more are following Jesus, and that fact did not sit well with the religious authorities who felt that the only viable solution was to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. So even as Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem, the religious leaders have already begun to lay plans to kill him. Because it was Passover, the Jewish historian jo Josephus estimates that there are between two and three million people who are packed in the city. So when Jesus chose this moment 
to reveal himself as the Messiah. It is akin to throwing gasoline on a campfire. Something memorable is going to happen. As we read, I'll return your attention once again to, to Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say that the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then the multitudes who went before him and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he'd come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And so the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. I want us to look this morning at the, our king, and first of all, I want us to look at the preparation for the king that we see in the first three verses, and then in verse 6 and 7. Now, the story that we have before us, the story of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem is obviously very important. I make that note because it is recorded in all four of the gospel accounts. The thing that has to strike you as you read through those four gospel accounts is that Jesus was in complete control of everything that transpired that day. In verse 1, Jesus is making preparation for his entrance into the holy city. These preparations are important for it is now that Jesus intends to reveal that he is the Messiah. And so he sends his disciples out with detailed instructions about what they are to do. He told them where they are to go, what they will find, and what they will say. And Jesus predicted everything that would take place. The purpose of the mission given the disciples was to secure the cult on which he was to make his entrance into the city. Now, each of the accounts mentions that Jesus sent two of his disciples, but none of them tell us who those disciples were. We can surmise, however, that since Mark gives eyewitness details and Mark receives his information from Peter, that Peter was one of those who went. Jesus anticipated the objections that could be raised, and he has told his disciples what to say and read response in verse 3. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. The assurance found at the end of verse 3, and immediately he will send them, is an encouragement to the disciples that the owner will be cooperative. And then in verses 6 and 7, we find out that the disciples carried out his instructions just as he had given them. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded. And they brought the donkey and colt and laid their clothes on them and set him on them. The second thing that we note about this is the prophecy concerning the king. 
In verses 4 and 5 we read, And all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is revealing himself to be the king. Matthew quotes the prophet of Zechariah, written over 500 years earlier. He's quoting from Zechariah 9, 8 through 10. But Matthew very selectively uses only part of that prophecy. He makes note of the fact that the king will come in peace. But he leaves out that the coming king will reign over an extended area from sea to sea. Of course, the second part of that prophecy, which Matthew does not include, will be fulfilled with the Lord's second coming. Matthew tells us that actually the disciples brought back two donkeys, a mother and a colt that had never been ridden. Jesus rides that colt into Jerusalem on a, he rides then on a young, unbroken colt with the mother walking along beside. But why a donkey? Because then as now, a man's transportation reveals much about him. If a man drives a five-year-old minivan filled with car seats, what kind of image do you get? Well, we can guess that he's a family man with young children. If a man drives a beat-up 20-year-old car, he's probably a student, and he's probably single. Secondly, uh, or third, I guess we should say, if he drives a sleek, uh, fast, red sports car, He's probably experiencing a middle-age crisis, but whatever we drive says something about who we are. So it was in that day. Kings and conquering generals rode powerful stallions from which they could rain down blows upon their enemies. But no one rains down blows on their enemies from a donkey unless they're fighting slow-moving midgets. I'm sorry, that was politically incorrect. I should have said little people. But contrary to what we might think today, riding on a donkey was a kingly act which identified the rider as the royal line of David. It told the whole world not only who Jesus was, but what he was like. It presented both his person and his position. We see Jesus coming in humility and gentleness which is symbolic of the fact that Jesus still comes to mankind in humility and gentleness. We seem to think that God always speaks in thunderous tones of judgment. Sometimes he does. But God often speaks in still, small voice. The world shouts at us from every side, illustrated so well by the television commercials that make you search frantically for the volume control. God, however, demands that we listen in order to hear his voice. Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem was no haphazard event. Not only the day, but the very hour for his presentation as the Messiah was selected in eternity past with countdown precision. Almost 500 years earlier, an angel had appeared to Daniel and said in Daniel 9, 25, Know therefore and understand 
that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. These weeks are weeks of years, and if we do the compilation, we come up with 483 years. Daniel was told that 483 years from the signing of the order which allowed the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, the Messiah would appear in Jerusalem. Sir Robert Andrew, a former director of England's Scotland Yard, a brilliant lawyer and also an avid Bible student, analyzed the book of Daniel and he calculated the order was issued for the command allowing the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem on March 28, 445 B.C. And that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on April the 6th, 32 A.D., exactly 483 years later. Jesus rides into Jerusalem in fulfillment of ancient prophecy. But he's still clearly in control. He knows where he's headed and he knows what is going to happen. And still he rides on. And third, I want you to look with me at the presentation of the king. Beginning in verse 8. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And we had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And so the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus began the approximately three-mile journey from Bethany to Jerusalem. And as he approached the city of Jerusalem, the people lined the road, lying their clothes and waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna! The Hebrew word Hosanna literally means save now. So as Jesus is riding along the road, the crowds are, are shouting, save us, save us. The question becomes, save us from what? It's highly probable that those exclaiming Hosanna or save us may not have all meant the same thing. There were those who were present who were looking for salvation from their problems, from economic or otherwise. Some were looking for salvation from political opposition from the Romans. Some were looking for salvation from the burden of their sins. It's critical to understand what these people were thinking when they said, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. In order to understand how some of these very people just a few days later, could be in the crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him. I want to just list three possibilities for you this morning. First of all, some of these people perhaps were swept up in the emotion of the crowd. No doubt some of those who were present were merely caught up in the excitement of the moment and had no real commitment to Jesus. Whenever a crowd gathers, everyone wants to know what's going on. 
Whenever there's an accident on the expressway, traffic always gets entangled. Not from the accident itself, but from rubberneckers who want to see what has happened. People don't want to miss anything that's big. So some of those in the crowd that day were now, no doubt, just looking to see if anything important was happening. Some of those people who were there were being carried along on carrying out a religious ritual. The cry, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, is taken from Psalm 118, verses 25 through 28. And it was a common religious phrase. It was used especially at Passover. It was not uncommon to welcome pilgrims to the Passover with those words. So for many people, they may simply have been reciting a familiar prayer. It's like what happens in churches today that recite the Lord's Prayer often. It's possible to recite the prayer without ever stopping to consider what the words may mean. Some of these people were in that same sort of situation. Some of these people were calling out for political deliverance. Many, if not most, of the people of Israel believed that the Messiah, when he came, would come as a military conqueror. For some, the day that they were experiencing, they were participating in what would be the equivalent of a political rally. They were excited because they thought the glory days of Israel were going to return. Over the course of time, shouting Hosanna became something of a nationalistic cry. Rather like, God save the king in England or God bless America in this country. Now, God bless America can be a humble prayer of a Christian. Or it can be the proud words of someone who is convinced that God is on America's side no matter what America may do. The reception that they gave Jesus was based on his fulfillment of their expectations. The common hope of Israel was that the Messiah would come regally and formally into Jerusalem as a mighty conqueror. But Jesus was not at this time bringing political deliverance to Israel. But he was much more importantly bringing spiritual salvation for sin. To joyfully welcome him as their kind of king is not to receive him as the Lamb of God, set to take away the sins of the world. To receive their kind of Jesus is to reject God's kind of king. This apparent Reception is in reality a rejection. It is destined to result in rejection. It will take a, two, a few days for it to become evident, but when they finally grasp that Jesus has not come to fulfill their expectations, but rather to be a different kind of Messiah, they will quickly turn against him and they will reject him as their king. But there's a last group. Some of these people were wise enough to be calling out for spiritual deliverance. 
It is not only likely that Jesus entered the city surrounded by sheep, headed for the sacrifice at the temple, but also at the very moment that Jesus was dying on the cross, those sacrificial lambs were being slaughtered for the Passover feast. Passover was a yearly celebration commemorating the freeing of the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt. You remember that on the night of the Passover, God struck every firstborn child of the Egyptians. That devastating plague led finally to the release of the Jews from bondage. God told the Israelites, however, during this plague to slaughter a lamb and take the blood of that lamb and apply it to the doorpost of their homes. This blood of the lamb would be recognized by the angel of death as protecting the firstborn child that lived within that home. It was meant to be a picture that pointed to another lamb, the lamb that would die in our place to free us from a much greater slavery, slavery to sin and death. Jesus was the lamb of God taking away the sins of the world. Some of those who witnessed Jesus arrive in Jerusalem ultimately rejected him because he was not the kind of king they were looking for. We face the same kind of challenge today. We are not given the choice of choosing and making Jesus into the kind of king that we would like. But whatever people may say, then or now, Jesus is king. 2,000 years ago, as a symbol that he was indeed the Messiah, he humbly rode a donkey into the holy city. But it will not always be so. The next time he returns, it will be as king over the whole earth. When he comes again, it will be a demonstration of his power, and he will be riding a white stallion. Zechariah 14, 4 and 9 says, And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem from the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain will move to the north, and half of it toward the south. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. Jesus is going to enter the city of Jerusalem once again, but this time he will enter as king. Ezekiel 44 predicts that the Messiah of the future will enter through the eastern gate of the city into the temple. Today, all the gates surrounding Jerusalem are open, as Ezekiel predicted, except the eastern gate. The eastern gate is shut to this very day. Neither Christians nor Jews did that. The Muslims did. You see, the eastern gate is the one most close to that of the Dome of the Rock. The Ottoman Turks closed off the eastern gate because it was so close to their holy site, the third most holy site of Islam. They knew that the Jewish Messiah was to enter that gate, and so they sealed it, and they placed a Muslim graveyard right in front of it. They did this because they knew no Orthodox Jew would walk on a grave. 
So they did this thinking that they would prevent the Jewish Messiah from returning. But that old graveyard will not stop Jesus. Because on that day it will not be a graveyard any longer. J.M. I'm sorry, S.M. Lockridge is a famous African-American preacher. He's pastor of the Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego from 1953 into 1993. Back in 2007, I shared a little short video presentation of S.M. Lockridge's That's My King. But it's so powerful and it's so fitting for today's message. I want to share that with you again this morning. I'm going to ask him to play the video, That's My King. Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be at all sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. The captive, he defends the people, he blesses the young, he serves the unfortunate, he regards the age, he rewards the diligent, and he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge, he's a wellspring of wisdom, he's a doorway of deliverance, he's a pathway of peace, he's a roadway of righteousness, he's a highway of holiness.
how you can say it any better than that. The whole world can reject him and Jesus is still king. Men today can do as they please and Jesus is still king. And he will have the last word. And the only question that remains, is Jesus your king? Do you know him as your personal Lord and Savior? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the day that you've given us to gather here together. And I pray, Lord, your blessings on each one that's here. I don't know their spiritual condition, nor do I know their heart. There may be someone here, Lord, that needs to accept you as their personal Lord and Savior. They've never turned to you, repented of their sins, and asked for forgiveness and received that forgiveness at your hand. Father, I pray that if there's one such here today, that they use this time to develop a relationship with you. I pray that each of us might be once again encouraged by the knowledge that you are king, that one day that you're coming to establish your rule and reign on this earth, that you're going to establish a millennial king for a thousand years, and that those who believe in you will rule and reign with you. Father, I pray that you'd help us to live in the victory that is ours. Father, whatever it is that you want to accomplish in our hearts and lives this morning, we want to turn this time over to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? Whether James is going to be here this morning, if God has spoken to you in some way, some decision that you need to make, I'd encourage you this morning to make that. If you have not accepted Jesus and you need to, will you come and we'll have someone take a Bible and show you how you can. If you here this morning, you need to request baptism. We'd invite you to come. Or maybe God's laid on your heart. This is a place where you need to serve. We'd invite you to come and be a part of our family. Whatever it is that you need to do, you do it right now while we sing.